Alone in the woods, Farah hunts to feed her starving family, a father and two older sisters who leave the burden of their survival on her shoulders. Only after selling its pelt does Farah discover she has killed a fairy disguised as a wolf. Doomed to live in Prithian, fairy lands across the wall from her human home. Farah must satisfy the ancient treaty and resign herself to a lifetime away from her family and the world she knows. In the opening chapters of Sarah J. Mass's beloved series, we ask ourselves, is Farah a character we want to follow into the unknown? The views expressed by the hosts are entirely their own and in no way represent the thoughts or intentions of the original author. This podcast is a discussion shared to spark thought and conversation on the characters and themes of this novel. Though the hosts speak mostly within the constraints of this book, series spoilers may be discussed with or without warning. Explicit language as well as themes of sex, violence, abuse, and depression will reoccur throughout the podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Book Talk for Book Talk, a podcast where we deep dive into the writing of your favorite novels. This season, we are exploring Sarah J. Mass's most controversial novel in the Court of Thorns and Roses series. This is Jack. And I'm Amy. This week, we're discussing chapters one through five in A Court of Thorns and Roses. All right, Amy, tell the listeners a little bit about who you are. Hi, folks. My name is Amy. I have an undergraduate degree in creative writing and a master's in education. I have been writing and reading critically since high school, and I am actively working on a fantasy novel titled Light of the Forebearers. How about you, Jacqueline? I am Jacqueline, but I go by Jack. Amy and I went to college together, and we both majored in creative writing. Later on, I went and did my master's in comparative literature, and I too am a writer, but I do not have any kind of title to give you, but we aspire. And basically, there's a million ways you can analyze literature. Please don't think that we're giving you the right or official way. We have to put a disclaimer out there. This isn't a read-along. We're diving into A Court of Thorns and Roses. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. With spoilers. And assuming that you've read this entire book. So that means we will be recapping things uh, chronologically for the most part. But, you know, you can't do a deep dive without referencing things from the back. Oh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be jumping ahead and back and forth. Like Jack said, we are going to be as chronological as possible. But there is going to be some references that throw it forward, throw it back. That being said, we're not necessarily diving into any book beyond this. We may hint at certain things in future books, but you do not have to be well versed in the universe. Correct. We did try to honor this book as a standalone. And honor it, we did. At the top, we'll let you know that when we say that we're diving into this in a literary analysis, what we're really going to be looking at are themes and literary lenses. So a theme is a central topic, subject, or message within a narrative. And a critical lens, essentially, is we're looking at particular works of literature and focusing on different style choices, plot devices, character interactions. And there's different ways of doing this. I'm going to be looking at this through a feminist lens, which means I'm kind of looking at the push and pull of gender. And Amy's going to be looking at this through a Marxist lens, which looks into the power dynamics. Boom. Power dynamics. That's that's all this book is, is power dynamics. Yeah, that's right. So what was your first time reading or listening to this book? And what were your initial thoughts? So the first time I read this book was right after reading the most sophisticated fantasy novel I've ever read with the best storytelling ever. What book was that? That was The Name of the Wind Ooh. by Patrick Roth something. I don't, I don't yeah. remember his last name. Sorry. Bad bad me. We're not doing this season on him. It's fine. Yeah, it's not about him. So when I read this, the first chapter, I was like, no, this is too simple. This is not sophisticated enough for me. So put it down. Um, and maybe six months later, you convinced me to listen to it uh, as an audiobook. And I did because I had to start commuting to work again, I think is what it was. And you couldn't stop. And I couldn't stop. It's funny because I got on to the ACOTAR, that stands for A Court of Thorns and Roses, pretty early on. I started reading it right before the second book came out, and it was fun. It, it was I, I listened to it same way, and it was an enjoyable read. 
Okay, listen, but it really hooked me in towards the end. So I think what's interesting about when we're talking about a book and what makes it successful is the hook, essentially. Like, what is it that the publisher thought would be interesting? What is that moment that captured you, Amy, of, all right, I'm in. So for me, it wasn't until Favor Goes Under the Mountain. Up until that point, it just was very cookie cutter and predictable to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was when we go under the mountain that I was like, oh, this is interesting. But as a writer, you expect the hook to happen much, much sooner. How about you, Jack? Same. Under the mountain changed everything for me. If anything, the second that we went underneath the mountain, I was impressed with how much she, Sarah J. Mass, the author, focused on it being so cookie cutter just so that she could tear those expectations later on. And I love that. It's, you know, you build us up just to let us fall. And I respect that. Let us fall. More like tear us down. Tear us down. So at the start of each episode, we're going to pose questions to ask ourselves that we're actually not going to answer right away. We are going to reflect back on these questions at the end of the episode. So for today, we're asking ourselves these two questions. First, does this book convince us that where we end up is actually believable? And second, does the first chapter do what it needs to do to get us hooked? We're going to be looking at different themes as well. And the two themes that we're really going to be looking here are responsibility and Farrah's input and output of love. These are two things that carry the first part of this book, and we want to take time to look at it. And before we jump in, I want to mention one last thing, and then we get to the good stuff, folks. We are going to look at chapter one as an effective first chapter, but we're not going to do that till the end of the episode. So we're going to jump in right off the bat to talk about some of the themes that we noticed from chapter one all the way through chapter five. All right, you got this. All right, to start us off, just going to go for the bludgeon. We're going to talk about survival and trauma. Very early on, Feyre thinks to herself, my life had been reduced to nothing but risks these past eight years that I'd been hunting in the woods, and I'd picked correctly most of the time. Most of the time. Now, this isn't really what you expect a girl of 19 to describe her life since the age of 11. Now, we don't quite know her age at this point, but... As someone who's read the book already, we know she's 19, we know she's been hunting for eight years, and that's a really bleak life to have lived. Mm. This is what we call childhood trauma that impacts a person all the way throughout the rest of their life. I think that that's really devastating to start out a character this way. So let's talk about some of the trauma that we witness early on. We see Feyre as acknowledging this other self that she has, but having to constantly deny that self or those desires that she has. And this is a huge theme we explore throughout the book and throughout this season. But very early on, we see it in chapter one, when she thinks about painting, being well-fed, and marrying off her sisters. Within the first few pages of the book, Feyre thinks, once it had been second nature to savor the contrast of new grass against dark tilled soil. Once I dreamed and breathed in color and light and shape. It's such a, I mean, I know we're going to discuss the summary of chapter one at the end, but holy moly, when you really read that first chapter, it's, the descriptions are pretty powerful. But I don't think people give it enough credit. And I know I certainly didn't. Me too. I'm like saying that as scoffing. Yeah, Amy. No, I didn't give it credit either. But I mean, considering just how much information that you're already unpacking and that it's like up till page three. Right. Right. It's page three. And this is a very early sign of how Farah's brain works. And mm-hmm. we're going to see this littered throughout the novel. And Sarah J. Mass is just spoon feeding us like, here's a flag. Yeah. Here's your sign. Spoon feeding us or shoving it down our throat with us out without us even realizing it. Uh, that. Yeah. Non-consensual, unidentified. <laughs> like Food shoving. <laughs> Food shoving. Um, That's a different podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not this one. You know, one of the questions I asked myself when I read this is, okay, she's alive, but is she actually living? And she has this thought, I couldn't remember the last time I'd done it, bothered to notice anything lovely or interesting. Like, what's the point? What's the point of living at that point? 
If you can't even just say this is pretty or even let yourself. Right. Because that's the big thing is that she's not letting herself look at this. Exactly. Exactly. And we're going to see that a lot in this novel of her recognition that, oh, that's lovely, but I can't allow myself to think that that's lovely or I can't allow myself to dwell on it. She has, Farrah as a character has an insane amount of control. She does. It's really impressive. And it's not something that a 19 year old should have. Yes. I know I didn't. I thought I did. We all think we do. I mean, like the chapter starts off with her hunting in the middle of a forest and just squatting, waiting. Yeah. In the middle of winter. In the middle of winter. I can't squat for a minute. So you said something to me that I wrote down. um, And that is to survive is to endure trauma and to endure trauma is to survive. And that is exactly what we see when we first meet Feyre. Mm -hmm. And you only get glimpses of it now and you'll learn more later, but She's lived this really difficult life, and she's survived it. But by surviving it, she has endured trauma. And it's just really tragic that this is the character we're first introduced to. It really is a show-not-tell, but slightly telling. But we didn't realize we're being told. Yeah, yeah. She's just hunting. She's just hunting in a forest. It's this really strange balance that on the surface we take for granted. Yes. So speaking of hunting and being in the forest and survival and all those things, let's think for a moment about Farah's urge to kill the wolf or the fae that she encounters in the forest. Her instinct is to suspect that the wolf is fae because that is what survival has taught her to be cautious to absorb the information she's been given and to apply it in every aspect of her life. But whether or not the instinct is accurate, she has a strong urge to kill the creature in front of her for a couple of reasons. First is safety. If she doesn't kill the wolf, she's not safe. And if she doesn't kill the wolf, the village isn't safe. And also because she wants to secure food or the dough that's in front of her. Because she needs to feed herself. She needs to feed her family to survive. And both of these things are about survival. We learn later in the book that this instinct is not natural to her at all. And that she actually hates killing. And though we see the consequences of this later, because killing in this moment is a pure act of survival with no additional thought attached to it. Except, the caveat is, if it is a fae and not just a wolf, (laughs) there is hate. There is hate there. And that's important. Yeah. But we don't know it's important. It's incredible that the first introduction that we have with Farah as a character is a hateful individual who isn't afraid to kill. I mean, yeah, she's like afraid to kill, obviously. But she's she does it. She kills the wolf. And she doesn't know what it is. But, you know, if it is a wolf or if it is a fae. And I think that it's such a interesting structure because you and I talked about it before. And again, we'll mention it. We'll talk about it more in the end. But the fairy that we get at the beginning isn't the fairy that we get like the first chapter, even like the fairy that we get in the second chapter. It's just this gut, this instinct to kill is there. And like Sarah J. Maas does, she deconstructs that with the truth of her characters. But we don't learn that for hundreds of pages. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing that Sarah J. Maas is great at doing is deconstructing her characters and her story. I mean, really, she's her own hipster restaurant deconstructing everything. But what she does best, I think, in the initial chapters is she deconstructs the feminine. And we're introduced to Farah. She is a young woman. And Right off the bat, she is everything that, as a reader, we're not used to. There's going to be a lot of, uh, I don't want to say a lot of upset people, but you know, when we, when looking through the feminist lens, I'm looking at it through the tropes of gender and what is it to be male, what is it to be female. This does not represent my own beliefs on what defines man, male and female and gender fluidity and everything, but just kind of the lens that I'm using here. And Farah immediately, she is hunting for her older sisters and for her father. She has taken on the hunter and gatherer approach. When you say hunter and gatherer, hunter was the male, gatherer was the female. And yet she is doing both. She is kicking ass in both regards. And what's crazy is that like Sarah J. Mass makes her distinctly not female in the stereotype. And it's not that Farah rejects the feminine. 
It's that Farah can't embrace the feminine. This is a result of her survival. So when we're looking at this through a feminist lens, that means we have to really take the approach of the person that we're getting here right now and what she is and how she's behaving is a result of her life rather than her desire. We do see her desire as the book progresses and what she defines as her own balance of the feminine and masculine. Initially, we can see that in Farah's mind, embracing the feminine is what she defines as what it means to be thriving, or at least not having to survive as intensely. And we can see that when she introduces her sisters. And I'll get into that in a second. But what I also really love is that Sarah J. Mass, like on page three, Amy, on page three, she immediately gets into Farrah is not afraid to get down and dirty with Isaac Hale in the barn. So Isaac is someone that she's sleeping with, but immediately she she is in Farrah equates sex to hunger and she's not afraid to have casual sex. She talks about it being a hungry, passionate, not even a passionate thing, just like an itch she got a scratch, really. Yeah, which is a very male thing. It is. She's out there hunting. She's out there fucking. Just another day in the office, man. Just another day in the office. So when we talk about her being the provider and rather than this being what she wants and rather a product of her survival, she even says, sometimes I would even envision a day when my sisters were married and it was only me and my father with enough food to go around, enough money to buy some paint. It's so important that this is a want that she has over and over. Like she really loves rehearsing this uh, want in her head because this is the only thing she's ever known to want. Or, I mean, does she does she even know what wanting is? Like, this is the peak of her desire. Yeah, and and it's a very simple desire. I think you bring up a good point that it, it only goes so far as everybody get away from me. <laughs> I want to make sure I have food and I want to paint. But that's just like one step towards having a life. That's not actually a life. No, that's like our, that's our Tuesday. Like, get right. away from me. I want to <laughs> eat and just do my own thing. Right. Like you said, she has so much control. She can't allow herself to think past that. I mean, ultimately, what it's showing here is that the dream is security and that it's really important that we see that that we're seeing this, that her goal is security. She is secure in food. She wants to be secure in lovemaking and just simple pleasures because that is what represents security. Uh, Once we're introduced to her sisters, Nesta and Elaine, Please remember those names. I mean, you already know those names. We've all listened to the book. Uh, or read it, the book. Or read the book. <laughs> there are those who chose to actually read this. We did That's read fair. the book a second time. Yeah, and the third time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, So we're introduced to Nesta and Elaine, and these are her older sisters. Nesta and Elaine are people who choose to remain in that soft, pretty, feminine, not quite working hard light and again, I'm, you know, I'm sure there's people that are like, that's not a feminine thing. Her father is also choosing not to work. Yes, he's choosing not to work, but it's highlighting in a way that he's choosing not to be a provider while the sisters are choosing not to work. And their highlight is that Elaine, her desire is to look lovely while Nesta doesn't want to get her nails dirty. So, you know, we're just interpreting the text here. Despite all this, despite the fact that Farah is the youngest of her sisters, despite the fact that Farah is a woman, she is the one who is in control or has a large say in their life. I mean, even early on in chapter two, Nesta's talking about getting married to someone and Farah is not having it because that guy is a bad guy. And she says, the day you want to marry someone worthy, I'll march up to his house and hand you over, but you're not going to marry him. And I just love, love that Nesta's response is to slut shame her. Because it just speaks volumes when we look at the different dynamics between her and Nesta. Yeah. And it's ironic, given Nesta's future. Spoiler. Spoiler. (laughs) Spoiler. Nesta gets a... Nesta's freaky. (laughs) Nesta is... If you haven't read A Court of Silver Flames... uh, By the way, my favorite. Just read it alone. Nesta is my spirit animal. I just (laughs) want you all to know. Court of Silver Flames spirit animal. Not necessarily... Not this Nesta. Yeah, fair. The relationship between them is going to be examined by both of us for a variety of reasons. So I look at it and I say, wow, Nesta's really not giving her any kind of the maternal vibe here. And if anything, everything that Farrah sees in Nesta is about herself. 
And they, you know, whenever Nesta speaks, it's to hurt Farah in a way that she knows is going to hurt Farah. And later on, when Farah is recounting Nesta's or was recounting her own like negative thoughts, it's going to be Nesta in her voice that she hears. So they really bring out the worst of each other because they see that they are the same person in many ways. Though Feyre sees herself in Nesta and vice versa, there is this weird power dynamic between the two of them. This is something I want to explore in a future episode when we get a little bit further into the text. But as just a quick foreshadowing or spoiler, Feyre is going to see Nesta in the future the same way that she views the High Fae. And without knowing it, we're seeing this very early on, that Nesta treats Feyre the same way the High Fae will treat Feyre, particularly Amarantha. And this is starting to create power dynamics that um, are going to play throughout the novel. I think also the similarities between how Nesta and Amarantha will treat Feyre speaks volumes to the unexplored trauma that Feyre has experienced throughout her life at the hand of her own sisters. When you pointed that out initially to me, I was just like, oh my gosh, you're right. It does, because that's one of our questions. Does this get us to where we need it to be? Right. It's crazy that so early on, we are seeing what we will see later. Yeah. The tools that Farrah has and just dynamics and everything. Yeah. And that she is resilient under the mountain because of the experience of her early life. And we're getting hints of that already. So for some example, if you don't believe me, Nesta says to Pharaoh on page 14, you stink like a pig covered in its own filth. Can't you at least try to pretend you're not an ignorant peasant? Also, page 19, you're just a half-wild beast. Pig, ignorant, beast. These are all words that Amarantha will use to describe Pharaoh to her face when she is under the mountain. Now insert the mind-blown emoji. Like, genuinely, <laughs> I, I love those moments when... The reason why we're doing this podcast is because you see stuff like this and this is just evidence of well-written work. Yeah. A well-written piece of literature. You know what's even crazier is that Favor is going to think these things of herself before mm. she gets under the mountain. Mm. She's going to use imagery that compares herself to a pig. Mm. She's going to think herself as an ignorant human yep. on more than one occasion. And she will remember Nesta calling her a beast. But all of it's going to help her mentally survive. Yes, because she's human and humans are resilient, whether you believe it or not, because the Fae don't believe it. That's for sure. And that's their weakness in the end. That is their weakness. But why is she so resilient, Amy? Why is she so resilient? What a fabulous question. So I want to bring up at this point Mother Archeron. If you've only read A Court of Thorns and Roses, you've never heard the name Archeron. And I'm spoiling that for you. Feyre's family name is Archeron. Sorry. Big spoiler. Big spoiler. Um, not really, but kind of. Uh, the reason why I call her Mother Artron is because we don't have a name for her. So that's the name Another I small her. thing that when you pointed that out, I was just, again, fantastic choice on Sarah J. Mass's part of like, here's such a pivotal but not pivotal character. And we're not going to name her. Yes, which we will discuss in a little bit. Not just in the context of Mother Artron, but in the context of other characters as well. So why does Mother Archeron, who is pivotal in the sense that she really shapes Nesta and Feyre, but in the context of this book, Feyre, why does she have so little space in this book? Because after a third of this book, she's never mentioned again. I think that this is foreshadowed early on. We're going to see this on page 16. Feyre says, my mother's dowry flatware had long since been sold. She also says, perhaps it was a merciful thing that she died. If anything, it left more food for us. Farah is very dismissive of her mother. Cold. I'm going to jump ahead in my notes because, you know, I think this indicates a level of resentment. She resents her mother and she also resents Nesta. Are they in some way one and the same? Has Nesta taken on the role of the mother? Think back to how Nesta and Feyre and their mother all share the same eyes. Feyre mentions this. Nesta's eyes, my eyes, my mother's eyes. Yep, exactly. You know, I think this is, indicates to us that Feyre sees this weird oneness with her mother and Nesta that she hates. Instead of feeling joy about their similarities, she feels disgust. She can't even look at herself later on in future chapters because right. it looks like Nesta or and her mother. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I think that this is also reflected in the bed 
that they all shared. Mm, mm -hmm. So the bed was a wedding gift to the mother that they were all born in, that her mother died in, that the sisters now all sleep in, and that Feyre, though she paints the rest of the cottage, will not paint the bed. Why is that? Is it a sign of loss or is it a sign of resentment that this is too entrenched in them and their history that she can't touch it? And it's also pretty interesting that this mother figure, Mother Archeron, was never meant to be more than, I don't want to call her a plot device, but she's nothing more than a very small part of Farah because, I mean, she died when Farah was eight. Right. I, you know, it's interesting you were, use the word plot device because that's exactly how I view her. Yeah, I know. She, she is a plot device because this trope or this device of... Um, mommy issues? Mommy issues. And what I, what I like to call the burden of promise. And I've seen this done in other novels where someone makes a promise that like influences everything they do for decades. And we see that with between Farah and the mother. But is it believable? You know, is it really truly believable as a driving force for Feyre or is it just a plot device to get us to where we need to go? You and I have gone back and forth on this a little bit. I can see I kind of land both ways where this is a plot device because, I mean, she gives it up pretty early on. But I think what I said to you when we talked about it was that because Nesta is such a direct, I don't know, like stand in for her mother it's not completely like she's not completely gone because Nesta is her mother in many ways. So, I mean, it, but that's like, you know, that's that's the beauty of literature, people, is up to interpretation. Right. The other conversation we had about this promise, and if you've read the book, which you all have, we know that this promise is resolved really quickly, which makes it e feel even more plot devicey, like mm -hmm. even more convenient and, for lack of a better word, stupid. But when I was thinking more about this and about Mother Archeron, because the promise is resolved early on in the book, does Feyre's bond with her mother dissipate like the flatware and like all these other things that she writes off? Or is there a reason for the minimal appearance? So this is where I feel like maybe she's more than a plot device. I mean, Mother Archeron is, really is, but doesn't mean it's bad just because you have a plot device. Mother Archeron is introduced in a very negative light. Uh, I think that's not a secret here. Uh, on page 16, Farrah Call says about her mother, my mother, imperious and cold with her children, joyous and dazzling among the peerage who frequented the, our former estate, doting on my father, the only person whom she truly loved and respected. So this is Farrah's only interpretation of love. This is the only thing that she sees as how love should look like. And what she's seen here is that love should be obsessive and it should be monopolized. Like, let's just have that hold it, taste it, think it, feel it. That feeling is what we felt too when we realized it. It's, I mean, like that speaks volumes to later. There's a Coldplay song. It's called Shiver. And I wish I could sing it to you right now. We'll insert it here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, this is how she understands love. And when you look at her relationship with her family, her father and her sisters, how they express their love, they don't. And, you know, it really is monopolized. Look at it this way. Nesta monopolizes Elaine, right? Because she is protective of Elaine. That's how she expresses her love is that she, Nesta abandons everyone else and looks only at Elaine. The father dotes on Elaine and Elaine dotes on their father. We don't see how Elaine dotes on Nesta. It's not like a two-way street of protection there. It really is Nesta takes care of Elaine. Elaine likes to take care of the father. The father, when he's sometimes conscious, will dote on Elaine. I mean, no one, nothing left for Farah. Yeah, she know. has no place here. She doesn't have a place here. But what she is seeing is love should be surrounded by one individual and there is nothing else behind it. <laughs> Warning, this will come up later. And then finally, at this point in the story, we realize that for Farah, survival only means trauma and that her father points out that survival can also mean hope. It's beautiful, but I understand why Farah can't get on board with that. She's never known hope because the hope would be to set herself up for failure or disappointment. The only thing that she can understand is that the other, her sisters hoped for food and Farah had to just do it. Right. 
because hope wouldn't get them food otherwise. So you had some, uh, I kind of spoiled it a little bit earlier, but you actually had a few notes on the names. Yeah. So the use of name is always an interesting choice when it comes to any author. And in the context of A Court of Thorns and Roses, so far, Feyre and her family have first names, except her father and her mother. They don't have names. Oh, you're right, huh? Yeah. The father doesn't even have a name. Not even the father has names, which is interesting. But you know who does have names? These random ass secondary characters, <laughs> and they have full names. Nobody else has full names except Thomas Mandre, Claire Better, and Isaac Hale. Why is that? Jacqueline, tell me why Why <laughs> give a secondary character a full name, but you're not going to give a full name to your main character. I gave you my theory on this before. I think that this is a great way of not wanting to describe someone. It, you're giving a lot of character to someone without actually having to invest in them. Yeah, you're you're giving them character without giving them character. Isaac Hale, Claire Better, Thomas Mandry. Like you can great see name. these. You can see them in your head. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do see them, but I don't know what they look like. <laughs> no, they are also the only secondary characters with names. And I think that this also signals to readers they have some significance. Mm -hmm. And their significance varies. Yeah. And the reasons for their significance is different. But these are not characters you want to forget. I mean, props to Sarah J. Mass for mentioning Claire better. So, so early. early. So early on. So early. That's not even something I caught until the second read. Yep. And it was just like, oh, oh, shit, you did. You knew what you were doing. You knew, damn it, you were good. Yep. And Nesta knew Claire. Yes. Nesta knew. Nesta knew. So when Claire comes up again later in the book, she is mentioned as a childhood friend. But you don't remember Nesta having mentioned her this early on. Wait, is she really mentioned as a childhood friend? Yes. But that's not accurate, though, because Claire... Our, what, a friend from the village. I okay. Don't, I don't remember. Do I need to look this up now? Oh, yeah. No. I, I got it wrong. I misspoke, folks. It says, I blurted the first name that came to mind, a village friend of my sister's, whom I'd never spoken to and whose face I couldn't recall. Just like the reader, because it's never been described. It's never... No, not, not at all described. Uh, the only description we get is of her corpse later. This is true. Poor Claire. Um, for those of us who want to know where I read that, that was chapter 26, page 241. Thank you, Amy. So it's interesting because like when you go into the themes of names, you also have someone like the mercenary. Who, who has no name. Have a name. And who comes up more than once in this novel. But the mercenary has no name. Why is that? I just made this connection as we were talking. I think the mercenary and the mother don't have a name for the same reason. Because Feyre is meant to see herself in both of them. Mm. So when the mercenary pays too much for the wolf pelt and the doe hide that Feyre goes to the market to sell, Feyre asks why. And the mercenary responds on page 26 by saying, Someone once did the same for me and mine at a time when we needed it most. Figure it's time to repay what's due. And here we're introducing the idea of karma and paying it forward and I think that this foreshadows Feyre's future, that she'll get to a point in her life where she will also be in a position to pay it forward, to repay what is due. I mean, that's even like, are you referencing book two? Yes. Yeah. Well, just like most of the books. As Farah gets more freedom in general, she is pretty charitable. Yes, she is. Very charitable. Now, again... I think the mercenary is signaling to us that she and Feyre have a lot in common. Page 28, she says to Feyre, a word of advice from one hunter to another. In Feyre's mind, this mercenary is way more capable than Feyre is. But the mercenary is speaking to her like she's an equal. This signals to me the mercenary sees herself in Feyre. And though Feyre doesn't become a mercenary, she does cause death. She does see gratitude from others for causing that death. Feyre is always selling herself short, which I'll talk about. A little bit later, but in a little bit. As you're saying that, I'm like, oh, crap, this is another example of a thing I'm going to talk about. But yes, like, Farrah doesn't see herself in the mercenary. Right. When she ends up being, like, almost probably far more capable than her. Way more capable than you would ever suspect a mercenary of being. Let's take a step away from the mercenary. Let's move on. They are now going home. After selling the wolf pelt and after the warnings the mercenary has given Feyre about the dangers of fairies and that they're starting to appear in human lands. 
we have the long-awaited entrance of Tamlin. Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. I don't know which way. What do you I think about his name? Through. Pardon? Do you think he has a stupid name? Tamlin? Yeah. I don't because I used to have a student worker named Tamlin, but she was a she, and mm. I really liked her. <laughs> so I, I feel like I name. would butcher, like, if I was fair, I'd somehow Californianize it. Tamlin. 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 Hey, Tamlin. I wonder why his nickname isn't Tammy. Why Why hasn't Resand called him Tammy yet? Because he's a dick. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Before we move on to Tamlin, um, I want to talk about a reoccurring image that we see upon Tamlin's entrance that has been alluded to in an earlier part of the book, which is the smashed doorway. In chapter two, when Pharaoh recalls the moment the creditors came to beat her father, she remembers that the creditor and his thugs had burst into the cottage. Now, when Tamlin enters, we read, there was a roar that half deafened me, and my sister screamed as snow burst into the room and an enormous growling shape appeared in the doorway. The door is later also described as shattered. We see a shattered door in her past, we see a shattered door in her present, and we're going to see a shattered door again in her future. At this point in time, these intrusions, specifically the destruction of doors, signals the end of life as Pharaoh knows it, or the closing of a chapter, which I think is really fantastic. And I didn't notice this until much later in the book. And I know we said we wouldn't talk too much about future books, but the fact that like in book two, Tamlin quite literally shuts the door on her mm-hmm. is kind of fantastic mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now that you're talking about this. Yeah. And doors and thresholds always oh. have significance. In literature, it's a very like mirrors, doors, thresholds. Yeah. yeah. It's a very common thing. So anytime a threshold or a door is specifically called out, it is worth paying attention to. And I think that it does have significance here that when the creditors came and disabled her father was the end of their comfort in life and her beginning to be a hunter. Here, it's the end of her life with her family and her moving on to Prithian with Tamlin, um, which I think is chef's kiss. Um, so speaking of Tamlin demolishing doors uh, with no respect. Like, he really didn't have to. He didn't have to. He could have knocked. He really, I mean, or he could have just like walked in. like he didn't have to like i get that like you know he's like a fairy he doesn't have to knock for humans but don't shatter the door it's it was a the poor door he calls it a hovel like respect the hovel like just imagine like someone's like bunch of sticks or like a sandcastle and it's like i go and kick it through the sandcastle be like i gotta ask you a question (laughs) (laughs) sorry did you kill my friend i gotta have a question to ask you Oh, you, you didn't do it? All right. I got to go kick another sandcastle in. <laughs> it's so awful. <laughs> um, Tamlin's the asshole on the beach that's stomping on everyone else's. Yes, on everybody's sandcastle. Yeah. Um, which is exactly how Sarah J. Mess depicts him. He multiple times talks about wrath and rage. Like there's very violent imagery. He's all these violent animals, lion, hound, elk. I mean, an elk's not violent, but it's got antlers and it's intimidating, right? I love that, like, though, even with the way she makes them is like, not quite a lion. <laughs> yeah, not quite a lion. He's, he's kind of half-assed. There was no doubting the damage his black dagger-like claws and yellow fangs could inflict. Mm-hmm. He yells, murderers! The beast roared, hackles raised. And then the roar was gone, but the wrath lingered, perhaps even traced with sorrow. Oh. And his answering growl was the definition of wrath and rage. So much wrath and rage. 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 So why do we ignore this? <laughs> like, why do we ignore the fact that this man is just a ball of angry fire? I mean, he really is a ball of angry fire. And like, this is where the context of spoilers uh, we're going to be referencing throughout this is what he should want to happen. Why is he so angry? Like, I know his friend died, but he's actually finally getting what he wants. What he wants. Right. And if you're trying to get this girl to fall in love with you, do you walk in yelling murders? I mean, maybe it's just his way he's trying to get them to get Farrah to, like, do the treaty. It is an act. Okay. I, no, no, I'm i sure but it's real. is it, though? I don't think so. I feel like Lucian... A spoiler for next episode. Lucian has to convince him. Yeah, fair. And I'm just going to go again with the whole half-assery. Like, Tamlin is a half-asser. He's got half the ass, half the re. Yeah. Yeah. 
that. You know, he's waited so long to send his sentinels back out. And then he's pissed off that one of them dies. He doesn't even really want to engage Feyre, um, which you're going to talk about in a little bit. And he just doesn't know what the fuck he wants. Yeah. I, one of my favorite parts is he that Farah comes in. Like he's, he's stor- He storms in, right? Farah like steps in front of her family to protect them. She throws a freaking knife at him. She's like using her body. She's like strategizing. And then he's surprised that she's the one who killed the friend. Right. Despite like everyone else is like in the corner crying. He's like, you? Not your disabled father? And not your sisters that like can't even look at me? Like, I can't believe this. Yeah. Tamlin. And also, okay, I kind of want to like stop, like pause the conversation a little bit here because, you know, this is book talk for book talk. So, you know, on book talk, on TikTok, everyone loves hating on Tamlin. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows Tamlin sucks. However, I was there towards the beginning of this. And I remember when the second book came out and there were a lot of people who were pissed off because they felt like Sarah did Tamlin dirty. And I think that enough years and enough books have passed that people have magically forgotten that time. Mm -hmm. But I was there. I was there. It was rare. (laughs) I remember it all too well. So when we talk about like all these warning signs, Yes, it's something that as a community, we all know Tamlin sucks, but please try to remember the first time that you read this book and Tamlin was set up as the romance interest, as a prince of sorts, as someone to come in and save her. So putting aside what we all know, just keeping in mind, there were a lot of warning signs and we all kind of like Tamlin to begin with. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that's why I asked the question. We ignore this. Yes. Like, he is justified in his wrath and rage. We Mm -hmm. explain this away as we progress throughout the book. And I thought he was shady by the end of the book. But in the middle of the book, I was like, yeah, they're going to fall in love. It makes sense. Yeah. Why not? I mean, I was even like... The second he, like, turned into a hot fairy, I was like, no, I'm on board. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, he blonde? Oh, he blonde? He thick? He got a mask on? I'm in. I'm into it. (laughs) I just love how much. I just love past us. So young. So naive. Mm, So many red red flags here. What's interesting, though, is Farrah's response to Tamlin, right? Like, you know, he comes in. He's yelling murder. She tries to throw things at him. But before all that, she says, had I been alone in the woods, I might have let myself be swallowed by fear, might have fallen to my knees and wept for clean, quick death. But I don't have room for terror. And this is where we talked at first, like the theme of responsibility. And this isn't just a theme that we'll see in this first couple chapters. This is really the theme of the book. It's fascinating because Farah always describes her terror as I would die right here. And now I damn it, this is horrible. I would give in right here. But shucks, I just can't. And she does this over and over again of like, what she would do if she didn't have to survive for other people. And, you know, something that we talked about with the mercenary where she can't even imagine seeing herself as the mercenary because like Farah has a theme of just selling herself short. And eventually she gets that confidence, maybe not in this book in later books, but it's sad to see. I mean, it's, it's amazing to see where she starts and where she ends up, but you know, how she handles Tamlin's experience is interesting. Also, how Farah handles her goodbye with her family is so important here. How Farah handles a goodbye later will be a hot topic for us, but we have to look at how Farah handles a goodbye with the only people she genuinely loves, and that's her family. And how does her family handle their goodbye with her? I can tell you right now, there was not a single I love you. If anything, her father said, go, don't come back. If you get free, just just go. And I know that's like done with love. You know, he's trying to tell her, go, like we're holding you back. You can actually probably go thrive. Please go. It's a, you know, Lassie moment. You know, go Lassie. You We don't love you, right? You're just trying to save Lassie. But that's not how Farah would interpret that. I mean, even, even if she understood it clearly, here's a moment you're saying goodbye to your family from what you understand as forever, Not a single person said I love you to her. Not a single person showed remorse of her leaving. Please stay. Please don't do this. I mean, her dad did say like, take me instead. But 
there wasn't any I love yous and she couldn't do anything for them. The only thing she initially wanted was, can you kill me outside so that, you know, they don't have to clean it up. How that plays out is just really huge for her. I think it speaks a lot to how she processes information. Yeah. And we see a shift in that later in the book too. Oh, yeah. I'm really, I actually get like really bummed out for her because as they're riding in the forest, her and Tamlin and She's just thinking about her family like, oh, my God, they're going to die without me. I can't believe it. They're never going to survive without me. She's smug also. She's worried about it, but she's also feeling a little smug. It's a very human trait. It's something that I think we can all relate to. You know, we don't want our the people that we love to hurt or to be in pain or anything like that. But we want them to miss us and to kind of hurt a little bit like, you know, oh, life is a little harder without me, isn't it? Yeah, Jack, your life would be a lot harder without me. Oh, I already know this. I already know this. (laughs) But what hurts for me is that she never gets to have that moment with her family because Tamlin later, as he reveals later, immediately the family forgets, except for Nesta. He comes over, he sends like money to them. He takes care of the father's leg and they never actually get to miss her or hurt without her. Even though she can be grateful for that, it also is hard to know that at this point in her life, no one has ever needed her or missed her. Yeah, you feel worthless. Yeah. Like what's what value do you bring? You you bring no value. Which, I mean, I know we're jumping way ahead here. You know, when she gets that information, she really deflates. And if you think about this moment here where she's smug a little bit and her initial fear for her family – it never gets to play out. She's never been missed or wanted in her life. It's, a, you know, as sad as that is, it's not as sad and pathetic as the fact that Tamlin, uh, her and Tamlin are talking. Actually, she's talking to Tamlin. She's just asking him questions. He's her captor. She's allowed to ask a few questions. And he gets annoyed with her. I didn't even catch this the first time I read it or the second or third time. He gets so annoyed with her, he enchants her to sleep it's not to keep the secret of the wall safe or how to get to his place i always assumed that's what it was but it says pretty clearly that it was in the middle of like there is he was annoyed with her and then like mid-sentence and just nope you're done talking and this begins a precedence of their dynamic of consent that is something that if like her first interactions with him are not being able to necessarily move or like to fall asleep and she forgives that pretty early on, it's a slippery slope. Yeah. Talk about power dynamics that, oh, this is just the way it is and I'm powerless because I'm human mm-hmm. and I'm just going to accept everything he does because he's a fairy and he has power. Like pretty shitty. Oh, yeah. Tamla shitty. Again, another warning flag that we just accept and she just accepts. Yeah, I mean, and we like, move past. And I think like, you know, it was phrased in such a way and made us believe like, oh, yes, he had her pass out for safety or like, uh, you know, not being able to trace the location again of how to get back and forth to the wall. But at the same time, it's amazing because that's a thing that Sarah's doing where she's making us think like Farah without realizing it because we dismiss it too as readers. Yep. So true. So, you know, what's my favorite thing is when we dismiss things that later turn out to be pretty big things. Which is my favorite thing. Which are also known as? I call them breadcrumbs. Breadcrumbs. We're going to be Hansel and Gretel, folks. So let me... What's the real name for it again? What breadcrumbs and... It's It's like like foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. Yeah. Irony. It, It shows up a couple different ways. I like to call them breadcrumbs and lump them all together. Yep. Um, To make... Not a loaf of bread. I'm going to make bread pudding. Let's make some bread pudding, folks. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to rattle off some things for you that you might have missed out on or not caught the first time you read the book. And I'm going to do this at the end of every episode. And let me serve you some bread pudding. (laughs) The bread pudding section. Bread pudding. Okay. So we all know that the curse that has been inflicted on Tamlin because you've read the book. So it is alluded to very early on in chapter three, the mercenary talks to Feyre and says, we don't know if the High Lord's leash on their beasts is slipping or if these are targeted attacks. I guarded an old nobleman who claimed it had been getting worse these past 50 years. Funny how 50 years is kind of a magical number here. What? Yeah. Chapter four, Tamlin lies about the treaty in order to get Feyre to go with him in order to break the curse. And Feyre explicitly states to him you don't need to mention that loophole 
But she thinks to herself, well, fairies can't lie, but they could omit information. We later learn the loophole is a lie. Yeah. He it's lied. a big old lie. All right. Feyre's destiny as savior of the fairy world. This is great. This is, I just, mm, so, mwah, mwah, mwah. goosebumps. You have just, you've just been making out with the chef at this point. I just, yeah, yeah. Okay. Chapter one. While contemplating killing the wolf, Feyre thinks, yet maybe, maybe it would be a favor to the world, to my village, to myself, to kill him while I remained undetected. And you know what? It is. She does save the world because she killed the wolf. All these things happen. Yeah. None of it would have happened if she killed the wolf. Like, if she little does she know that yeah. she wants to kill the wolf to protect her village, but killing the wolf protects the world. Yeah. Like, wow. Yeah. Um, chapter four, Feyre faces Tamlin and thinks, better to die with my chin held high than groveling like a cowering worm. I straight up laughed when I read this again. Because as we all know, in the first task at the end underneath the mountain, she is up against a literal worm. That's intentional, folks. If you don't think your writer's being intentional. It's intention. 90% of the time it's intentional. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's a serendipitous. Chapter four, Feyre's father's last words to Feyre. You go somewhere new and you make a name for yourself. And you know what? She does. We don't hear the name in this book, but... What's the new name she's given in book she two? later is known as Farrah Cursebreaker. Cursebreaker. That is a bomb-ass name. It really is. I mean, I just... The fact that he calls her and tells her, go, go, my child, be someone new. It's, uh, it's shivers. Yeah. Shivers when you reread it and you understand where things are going and you're willing to take a critical eye. Yep. Agreed. Let's talk about illiteracy. Illiteracy is a huge thing. And I did not realize how early it came up. The first page or two of chapter two, she says, I'd been too young to learn more than the basics of manners and reading and writing when our family had fallen into misfortune. Oh, thank God that doesn't come up as a life-saving issue later on in the book. Except it does. It does. Um, let's let's talk about some irony. Feyre ends up with a Fey High Lord. In chapter three, the children of the blessed tell Feyre, a friend of my cousin went to the border as our offering to Prithian, and she has not been sent back. Now she dwells in riches and comfort as a high-faced bride, and so might you. I love that so much. And so <laughs> might you, Feyre. And she's she like, She is nah. everyone's high, she is every high-faced bride. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Also in chapter three, a woman calls the children of the blessed fairy loving whores and Feyre couldn't disagree uh, like don't don't slut shame here's the moral of this book don't you slut, slut shame. shame you end up becoming that yeah yeah it's true it's I true mean, it's true you know what power to sarah j mouse for that one yeah i love it love it then one last thing and you know this if you've read the entire series we have the recurring image of the dresser and the affinities of each sister in chapter two the violets and roses were painted for Elaine, the crackling flames for Nesta, and the night sky for Feyre. Stars and night sky. We're going to see a lot of stars and night sky this book. For it is. Just keep that in mind. Every time we point it out, it will be important. It will be important. Um, so that was breadcrumbs, folks. Now, as I promised, I did want to talk briefly about the first chapter as a first chapter. This is really important because the first chapter makes or break a book. Yeah, it makes or break the book. And it convinces the publisher you're submitting your book to whether or not they should keep reading and publish your book. Yeah. First chapters, first lines in first chapters, like the firsts are always super important. So why did I fall asleep on it the first time I read it? Why does everyone fall asleep on it the first time yeah, they read it? People... It's a pretty consistent theme on TikTok that people say that the first book is kind of boring. It's not that great. Nothing compared to the other ones. And, you know, we really do snooze on this. Yeah. And I'm going to argue that the first chapter is a really, really tight piece of writing. And what do I mean by that? I mean tight by tightly woven 
very, very intentional. Every word, every detail is there for a reason. So let's start off with a couple of the recurring images. We see twice in the first chapter, the recurring image of a doe stripping bark off of trees. The first time Pharaoh imagines it, the second time she actually sees it. And this is given in the context of hunting. We see this later in the book. And when I point it out to you, it's going to give you shivers. I'm excited. Don't forget this, okay? Don't forget this image of a doe stripping bark off of a tree. Now let's go on to what the first chapter establishes. It establishes so many things in just a handful of pages. We have the foundational beliefs of the human society, their forgotten gods, their beliefs about fairies, Mm -hmm. all of which happen to be wrong, by the way. But because Mm -hmm. it's in the first chapter, you believe it. You believe it to be truth. We also see a lot of different power dynamics established very early on. We see the Archeron family poverty, and this is exemplified in Feyre's physical state, imagining what her sisters will think when she comes home empty-handed. And so we see their place in society. But because of also the beliefs about the Fey, we also see human power dynamics and Fey power dynamics and where humans fall, Yep, um, which is super important. We also see Feyre's denial of her instincts and her desires, which we've discussed before. We also see her obligation to her family, which is what the entire chapter boils down to. She's only there because she feels responsibility to her family and to keep them alive. And that's going to be the driving force throughout the entire book is this responsibility to keep her family alive or responsible to keep the family she's chosen alive. And there's so much more I could say about it, but it's really really fabulous when you go back and reread it. And this is why I think it's important to have literary analysis because I have reread this book a couple times before doing this deep dive and I you don't you can reread a book but unless you're doing a in-depth literary analysis you can miss out on a lot of things here. And if you don't know what you're looking for, you're really going to miss out on it. It's fascinating because even though we missed out on this on a lot of this information, we still absorbed it enough to go to the next chapter and then go to the next chapter, which makes this writing even better because we did not know what we were getting when we read it the first time. Jacqueline. Yes. We're at the end of the episode and we have some questions to answer. All right. Give them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Give them to me. I'm asking them. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> I can I can ask them. You can answer them. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, I, okay, I'd okay, love okay. to answer. I got you. I got you. Does this book convince us that where we end up is believable? Hell Yeah, it does. My first time reading this, I remember thinking, wow, I really enjoyed this book. But wow, she, you know, a human goes to a fey land and, you know, goes up against this queen type fairy and has all these challenges. And okay, that's really convenient that she survives all these things. And of course, like, is it convenient? Yeah, it's a book. It's literature. You know, like this is like a story we're trying to tell here. But is it believable? Hell yes, it is. Between her emotionally and mentally preparing, she is so physically prepared to survive. And this is her at, let's call it half speed, where she's starving Mm -hmm. and probably like not sleeping well or anything like that. And she's still capable of keeping a family of four alive. Uh, Yeah, it completely and utterly sets us up to believe it. What about you? Yeah, I agree. I mean, going back to the emotional and mental, like, She's endured a lot of trauma. At this point, she's barely surviving, but it's built a resiliency within her that is going to allow her to continue to survive when hard things come. And then that leads us to our final question. Does the first chapter, and I'll even say chapters, because, you know, we read what we referenced here was chapters one through five. And like, does it do what it needs to do to get you hooked? And to my answer is obviously It's a best-selling book. We're making a podcast about it. It's a beloved series. But beyond that, I think it definitely does what it needs to do. It creates a world. It creates lore. It's created characters that you didn't even realize that you love and hate all at the same time. Uh, As I'm thinking about this question, it definitely did it better the second time than it did the first time. Oh, completely. I mean, we the first time you read something, you can't read anything critically the first time. No. No, you're just there for the ride. You're you just, don't, you don't even know what ride you're on. You're a mindless, you're a blank slate, mindless gla- glazed donut. I don't know where I was going with that. You're but a vacuum. You're, you're a glazed donut waiting for sprinkles. Oh, oh, okay. That's an image. 
Yeah, that's yeah, a figurative is. language. <laughs> uh, and but like yeah, like you're you can't you don't know what you're taking in when you're taking it in. That's that's exactly right. Um, you're a big tub of lard is what you are. I just Me? want you to know. No, not you. Oh, no, the reader. The reader. I wasn't talking about you. Because I ate ice cream. I was looking at the wall. I ate I ice cream for dinner. You. That's why. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Book Talk for Book Talk. We encourage you to rate and subscribe to our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. Next week, we will be exploring chapters 6 through 10 of A Court of Thorns and Roses. We would love to hear your thoughts based on today's conversation. You can submit your comments to our form at booktalkforbooktalk.com for a chance to have your feedback discussed during a weekly mini episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, please visit our website, booktalkforbooktalk.com, to view our latest merch and learn about supporting the show through Patreon, Ko-Fi, or Venmo. Or find us on TikTok and Instagram. Our handle is booktalkforbooktalk. Bye. Bye.